Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. I felt like I needed to give a caveat, so before I start teaching, my wife's been gone the last three days, which, for those who know my personality and temperament a little bit, is like Dave Unleashed. Uh, so the minute I dropped her at Harvey at the airport, I got home and I got out blank printer paper and I made a to-do list for house projects, work projects, and church projects. And then for about 16 hours a day for the last three days, I've just been like, like bouncing around like a crazy person. Uh, like Friday night, I ended my evening after babysitting for the Beals. I'm not joking. Up in my attic with a shop vac vacuuming my attic, which some of you might be like, I didn't even know that was a thing people did. I didn't either, but I, I was replacing a gable vent on the outside of my house, and then I had to go in and seal it with foam, and then I was up there. I was like, wow, it's really messy up here, and next thing I knew, I had a shop vac, and I was like covered in asbestos probably, and sweating through my shirt, cleaning my attic at like 11 p.m., so... That's like the headspace I've been in for the last three days. And I was joking with Matt. Uh, I felt like to start, I should like introduce and give a little background story of 24-7 prayer and our history as this like prayer movement that derived from the, the British Anglican kind of charismatic church. And then next thing I knew, I had, an, I had a page-long outline going through like all the major movements throughout church history. <laughs> and, and finally, I called Matt. I'm like, Matt, can you just intro 24-7 prayer? Because I'm going to talk for like a half hour just on that if I give into it. So bear with me. Uh, Brian, I'm going to ask Brian to just intercede for me, give me a little self-control today. Because even after cutting out my church history notes, I have three pages of notes. Um, <laughs> So that's like 10 minutes a page, um, which is probably not going to happen. So I'm going to pick and choose. I'm going to try and keep this around 30-ish minutes, okay? We're growing up, Ryan. I can do it. Self-control. So I'm just going to pray. Father, I pray you would give me self-control and give me insight and wisdom. There is so much to say, but not everything needs to be said. And I pray that you'd lead me into giving understanding today for the frameworks and the biblical paradigms that we're inviting the community into this gathered season. And I just submit to you, submit my thoughts, my ideas to you. Amen. I think a couple things, double, double tapping a little bit on 24-7 prayer, a couple things I love about this tribe that we're a part of is the way they pursue such a radical Uh, example of following Jesus in such a normal and human and approachable way. That that blend of radical intensity with normality and everyday life. I think it's something I really look up to in the the network globally of 24-7. And another thing I really love is the way they, they seek to integrate what in times past have often been polarizing traditions. The charismatic prayer movement with the social justice movement which for many people, those are like oxymorons, oil and water, and people split churches or choose churches based on you know, that thing that they, they prefer or like to emphasize the most. And so I think 24-7 has, for me, really modeled a, a path to maturity of embracing diversity, 
diversity in denominational traditions, diversity in personality types and preferences, diversity in culture and ethnicity, all, all types. And I think there's an invitation in the text that we're going to sit in um, from Ephesians 4. I think Paul is giving that same invitation that the path to maturity involves a community of diversity, mutually submitted to one another, elevating and learning from each other's gifts and differences. And for those who weren't here, last January, February, we were at the filling station, hanging with Andy. Guys, this is Andy, if we didn't say that. He's the papa. He owns this place. And um, we're very grateful for him to open it up to us. And we were in here and we taught through the book of Ephesians, just chapter by chapter, kind of chronological Bible teaching. And chapter 4 is this really, I mean, every chapter in Ephesians is really good. But chapter 4 is kind of this climactic thing where Paul has laid out the mystery of the gospel in this grand, cosmic, sweeping way. And then chapter 4, he gets a little more practical and drives it home of what does this look like for the people of God, for the church. And ultimately, it's, it's this call to ministry and maturity. And, and that's kind of the theme that we felt to dive back into. So for this gathered season, we're going to sit in this, we're going to depart from this chapter in Ephesians 4. And then we're going to do some practical training and equipping over the next five, six weeks to try and move us as a community to greater levels of engagement in ministry, which is for all of us, not just Matt or Dave or Katie or Mia, and then greater levels of maturity. So that's our, we've never even had a series title but we were like, we should, we should title it. So Embracing Ministry and Maturity, that's the invitation. So Ephesians 4, I'm just going to read it. This is in the NIV, chapter 4, verse 1. I'll just read kind of half the chapter. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So again, Christ has created that foundation of spiritual unity through what he's done, but we still have to put in effort to keep it. There is one body, one spirit. Oh, this is a good one. Get a little loud. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But, so it's unity. We're all one in Christ, but... To each one, that's all of us, Paul's talking in third person, uh, plural, so it's like inclusive here. He's talking about himself and us. This is all of us. This is not just leaders. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. There's, we'll come back to this. It's an allusion to Psalm 68, 18. What does he ascended mean except that he has descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And then here we get to a really important verse, verse 11. We kind of skimmed past this last time we looked at chapter 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
And then there's this kind of beautiful illustration that Paul maps out, contrasting a ship being tossed to and fro, an immature community, with a mature community that is like a body, being built up, growing and nurturing with Christ as its head, the tissues and sinews and muscles growing together, strengthening, and a body actually has purpose. It's not just a boat aimlessly floating, not sure where it's going. A body has purpose and function to it. It does something. Okay, so, have you guys ever heard the phrase, oh, I'm, I'm called to ministry? Have you ever heard someone say that? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to ministry. This is like a brutal false dichotomy that's been built up for centuries in the Western church. That there is clergy, going all the way back to the Roman Catholic Church, even in the Reformation, we couldn't fully shed this, There's clergy, there's these specially elect, gifted people who are called to the ministry, and then there's everyone else, the laity, who's called to just be normal. And in Ephesians 4, Paul says, we are all apportioned a level of grace. And the Greek word for grace there is the same Greek word in chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul says, a grace was given to me to share the gospel to the Gentiles. Which is so fascinating to me, this idea that In Pauline thought, grace is not merely like forgiveness of sins. Grace has teeth to it. It has action. Grace is something that you're to now do with your life. I promise you, if Karamdeo is or someday becomes your home church community, there will be things that will drive you completely bonkers and batty if you don't understand this idea. You will look at Matt Hulse and be like, Quit telling me to lead a house church. Quit telling me to go do this stuff. If we don't understand this idea that as the body of Christ, we are all called to ministry. And again, that might take different forms. That's not going to mean leading worship on a Sunday or necessarily even leading a house church. The, The language Paul uses a little later on there that I just read, that we are to be equipped, his people are to be equipped for works of service, acts of love, to be the body of Christ in the world, in our businesses, in our vocations, as university students, as neighbors, in all of life. We're to have parties, and instead of roasting each other and embarrassing our friends, we honor and validate and speak prophetic words of hope over people, and then people are around and they're like, whoa, you guys are weird, and I kind of like it. That's ministry. So that's the first number one thing here. I think that we need to understand about the logic of this chapter. Paul believes that we're all called to ministry. Okay, let me go through. There's kind of two movements, I think, in chapter four. There's this call to give up and then give away. So I'll explain those a little. Let me unpack them. So verse one, Paul opens, he says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. Paul means that literally, like he's, he's writing the book of Ephesians as best as we know from historical research. He's literally sitting in a prison cell writing this book. But it's also on par with Paul's dominant kind of understanding of who he is to Christ. He's a prisoner for Christ. Other books he uses language like servant or slave. For Paul, he understands that his whole life belongs to Christ. He's his kairos, his Lord. And Paul lives to obey his Lord. And I I don't care if we've been following Jesus for a week or 40 years, 
we never graduate from this paradigm shift. And, and, and he drives it home a little further. If you go on to verse 8, there's this reference to Psalm 68, verse 18 that I read. And the picture is a parade of people ascending up a mountain and someone took captives and now he's giving away gifts. That's kind of one of the verses. You're like, well, that's a little weird and you just kind of move past it. You don't really sit in it. It's a little obscure. But what's going on here is in the ancient Near East, tribal regions, war is common of cities and regions going in to battle with other ones and capturing other cities. And it was very common practice that if you won a military battle, you would take over a city and the possessions, the homes, the food that was stored up, and even the people, the non-combatants, the people who weren't fighting, would now become your possession as the victor. So the victors have acquired this bounty and then they'd go back to their other towns and they'd spread it out, they'd share it, they'd give it away. Maybe it's cattle and oxen, maybe it's quite literally people, captives. Which sounds, again, to our modern ears like pretty intense and harsh. Picturing a parade of people who are bound captives. Isn't it interesting that for Paul, he reads that psalm and he's like, yeah, that's me. I'm one of those captives. Christ is the victor, and he's won me. And I'm now his captive, and he's free to give me away and do with me what he wants. He can do with my life what he wants. So there's this movement, this fundamental movement in Christianity of we give up our lives so that God can give them away to others. We give up to be given away. And and I think this is It's a really subtle shift, but I think to pause on that for a sec, again, whether we've been following Jesus for a week or 40 years, it's important to pause because you guys can, we can chat about this after if you disagree, but my perception, when I try to like step out of Christianity and look at it from the eyes of someone who's not a believer, or even look at my own Christianity and how I understand following Jesus or our communities or other churches, I feel like the narrative often goes something like this. Here's this story about this man, God incarnate, who died for your sins, and if you believe him and trust him and believe that story, you will have eternal life. You'll go to heaven. If you don't believe it, then you're destined for hell or other various iterations that are used, different terms that are used in the New Testament. Here's the story. If you believe it, you save yourself. If you don't believe it, you don't save yourself, right? Maybe some of us even kind of believe that that's accurate. But the problem with that order of operations is the whole point is still me saving myself. Like the whole point of me following Jesus is to save myself from some bad thing happening to me. So the self is allowed to remain at the center of the operation and equation. I'm believing this to get something in return. And I think, I think for Paul, quite dramatically, he understands what Jesus has done quite differently, right? He's on the road to Damascus, and he's going the complete wrong way in terms of his life. He's persecuting this sect of, that's emerging out of Judaism called the Way. He's killing Christians, and Jesus comes in and basically swoops him up into this story. Jesus conquers him in a sense. Paul has this vision of how he's living and what's bringing honor to God. And then God comes in and says, no, I'm going to conquer you, take over. And 
Paul becomes possessed by a reality, much more than just believing a story to save himself. Does that make sense, that logic? The gospel's a reality that we almost get caught up into, much more than a story we believe for our own sake, for ourselves. And it's this reality that Jesus is the victor. He's already saved you, and now it's our choice to align with that and accept it, embrace it, and live accordingly, or reject it, rail against it, run away from it, whatever we want to do. But, but the reality is that he is the victor. And that the appropriate response is that we'd like hop in the parade and give our lives up to him. Because he knows us better than we know ourselves and he's a good parade leader. And when you're a servant or a slave to Christ, it feels a lot more like being adopted into a family, right? So we give up our lives This is Paul in Galatians saying, I've been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I I mean, I'll never forget, this is like 10 years ago. I was in a, I was probably like a year and a half to trying to stumble my way through following Jesus. I'm 23, end up at this missionary training school. And some of you guys have heard this story in depth. I'm going to give the one minute version. But I'm deeply wrestling with unbelief. My rational brain is eating itself and I just can't. I just can't get into this Christianity thing. I just, it just feels like fairy tales to me, if I'm honest. And um, I'm in this meeting one night at our training school, and this guest speaker is coming in, and he's preaching on lordship. And I'm not kidding. When I hear the word lordship back then, when I'm 23, I'm like, is that like an old medieval ship? Or I have no idea what, he's, what that word means. Never heard it in my whole life. And he proceeds to preach this message, and all I remember feeling was he was a man possessed. He was someone, he didn't just believe a story to save himself. He was a person who had been captured by a reality. He'd been caught up in this reality of this story of Jesus. And it was like unleashed. And I had these series of events that night. Oh, it's so tempting just to tell all. Basically, I end up down in a parking lot, bawling my eyes out because I'm having like an existential crisis. And I pray this wild prayer, Lord, I'm done following you unless, unless you come possess me. Unless you bring me into this reality. Otherwise, I'm done. And I, I said, you need to send someone to come find me in this parking lot or I'm walking. And I'm sitting at like midnight in this abandoned parking lot on this base in Kona, Hawaii. And I kid you not, a minute later, a man emerges from a forest... <laughs> I'm not making this up. And he walks about 300 meters through these parking lots into my parking lot, walks right by me, turns and stares me in the face, smiling at me, and walks straight back 300 meters down into this jungle ravine. And I I could say a lot about that moment and that experience, but it was like all the rhetoric of this story about this man named Jesus got plugged in. It's like when the the transcendent becomes imminent and personal. This thing that's so beyond us even comprehending, and then all of a sudden it's so human and so real, and you're just like, (gasps) the fear of God and the love of God, and it's all baked into one, and reality captures us. And we all probably have stories like that or a series of stories like that, and I hope we have many more. And we don't, we don't live for those moments. But I'll tell you what, I live from that moment. 
in a good way, it like haunts me. I can't escape it. No matter how hard it gets to follow Jesus, there's no going back once you've been captured like that by the reality of this man. That's what Paul's talking about here. And what does Jesus do with his captives? He gives us a way. He's given you grace and he gives you a way to other people. For, (laughs) so sexy, right? Works of service. (laughs) (laughs) He gives us a way to love others. Because we don't have to just take care of ourselves anymore. The self is no longer the center. So we're freed to be generous and kind and hospitable and loving. And I remember the first time, similar time frame, so I had that crazy moment, and then like six months, no, four months later, I find myself in Cambodia, and I've been on this outreach. We were teaching in a school. It's where I kind of discovered I love teaching. And I had this student who was in my science class, and my curriculum for science was Wikipedia. And his name was Tola, and a couple of you have maybe heard this story. But Tola was the best. He was by far, like, unabashedly my favorite student. Everyone knew it. And when you grow close to someone, you, what do you do when you're not going to see them for a while? You eat food, right? So I'm leaving Cambodia, going back to the United States, and I invite Tola out for Chinese dumplings. This little Chinese man, like, hand-stretched noodles, like a dollar for a bowl of noodles and dump. I mean, it was crazy. I'd go there every day of my life if I could. So I take him to my favorite restaurant in Batambang for like two fifty. We have this amazing dinner, and then after dinner, guys, take notes. It's not a date unless you do two activities. Okay, so you have to eat, and then you have to go on a walk, or you have to go to a movie, and then you have to get froyo. So there has to be two things involved. I didn't even know this then, but I was apparently wise beyond my years. So dumplings. And then we walked across the street to a little kind of quickie mart 7-Eleven thing, and we got ice cream and sat on the curb and talked. And I'm on this missionary outreach, and I've been teaching in this school, and I've been mentoring, doing my best to walk with this guy Tola, to disciple him. And I'm just asking him questions about his life and what he wants to do and telling him how much I'm going to miss him. And at one point he starts going off on this dream he has to own his own restaurant and be a chef. And again, this is 10 years ago. I have no idea if he's accomplished that dream or not. But he's going off on this dream, and then all of a sudden his face gets really downcast. And he goes, oh, but I I could never do that. Look at me. Like, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents. I could never accomplish a dream like that. And... Not in missionary mode, in friend mode. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me, dude? And for 10 minutes, I just start going off and encouraging him and telling him all the amazing things I see in him and all the amazing things I love about him because he's my friend. And I'm being genuine. And after I'm prone to long monologues, after 10 minutes of me monologuing, like staring at the road, I look over and Tola's holding his little ice cream cone and it's now melted over his hand, and he's got like the big slow tears coming down. And he looks at me and goes, no one's ever told me any of that. No one's ever told me that I have gifts. No one's ever believed in me. No one." And he's just like weeping. And I'll never forget riding my little bicycle home to my YWAM base in Batambang, Cambodia, just praying, are you kidding, God? This is what Christian, the Christian life feels like. 
this is what Christianity is about. I just get to live, do stuff, and give away goodness to people and invite them into the goodness that God sees in them. Wow. That's not just a philosophy of religion to believe in our head cognitively, rationally, to save ourselves. It's a story to get caught up into, and it's a whole lot of fun to participate in. Matt Hulst has one of the funnest lives I've ever seen. I've thought that since the day I met him a decade ago. I remember getting around him and just thinking, this dude has so much fun all the time. And my life is burdened and tired, and I stay up till 1 a.m. and vacuum addicts. I'm a freak. What is wrong with me? Like, So we give up our lives to be given away. Okay, I want to get really practical. This is the last part. And this is actually kind of, I, I spent more time and emphasized because the movement of Ephesians 4, the emphasis of this chapter is on us being given away. That's the goal. The work of ministry, which we're all called to. This next part is just some little fine print details. Let's keep in mind that goal. So, verse 11. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Into verse 12. To equip his people for works of service, to build us up in unity, intimacy with Jesus, and all of that, those threefold things make us a mature body. And I have to give some like cautions and almost caveats for what I'm about to teach. You, You know those moments in Scripture where Paul's like, And regarding this, I do not have a word from the Lord, but, and then he says, but this is what I think you should do. He kind of gives his opinion. I feel like a little bit what I'm about to teach is that. Because there's this verse that talks about a diversified leadership structure. And depending on your church background, your denominational background, your history, Bible school, not Bible school, whatever, you maybe, what I'm about to invite you to consider, you've maybe never even thought about or heard of, or maybe you've heard about it and been like, "Mm mm-hmm, and you might totally disagree with what I'm about to share. So either way, whether this is so obvious to you, or you've never even heard of it, or wherever you're at, I'd invite you just to try it on, okay? And and these words, we're going to go through them one by one here, kind of to finish, But these words of the apostolic, the prophetic, the evangelistic, and then the shepherd teacher, people have understood them in different ways. So Aquinas and many others in church history have understood apostles here means capital A apostles, the 12. And then prophets refers to capital P Old Testament prophets, maybe John the Baptist. And then it gets a little fuzzy with who else would qualify. And then evangelists would be Peter giving that sermon in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, where the church kind of planted, or Stephen, the martyr, or different things like that. And again, all these words kind of conjure up different images for us, right? Depending on our background. And then there's even a debate. There's no Greek article before the word teacher, so some people argue the apostles, the, and then shepherds, teachers are one person. So there's even debates about how many there is. Is there four? Is there five? So I get it. There's Varying camps of opinion. But here's my invitation to you guys. My invitation is for you guys to try on in the next six, seven weeks and consider the the possibility that these words are not referring to narrowly historical people like the original 12, but that they're referring to functions and graces 
that are supposed to be present in leadership within a church body, and I would argue are actually probably present within you as well, because we've all, like Paul said, been apportioned a level of grace for ministry. So this is almost a typology, almost a, uh, you could, it's like a Myers-Briggs. It's like a framework that will help you understand why you maybe butt heads with someone on what's most important in the Christian life, or why even certain denominations have butted heads with each other, or parachurch organizations have butted heads with local church, right? That's my invitation for you guys to try this on. A couple cautions. If you have a Pentecostal, capital P, Pentecostal charismatic church background, um, you might even be used to people going by the title of apostle or prophet. And it can get a little weird. And sometimes those systems are used to justify a leadership structure that's very hierarchical. I'm the leader, the man of God, the woman of God who hears God and everyone else has to submit and follow. That's not what I would advocate. I think Jesus' model of leadership is servant-based. It's upside down. So leaders are to come under and encourage, support, empower everyone for the work of ministry, not lord over them. Second, there's a handful of places where Paul talks about other lists of gifts in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 12, in Romans 12. And so clearly we can't take this as just these five. It's not, uh, I wouldn't take it as like a formula. Lastly, again, I think we need to avoid thinking of them as too exclusive or superpowers, like just these special people have them. They are the grace given to the people of God for all. So here's some reasons why I think it's important to engage. So Paul has just taught about the unity and the oneness seven times, one, 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 one. That's to be present in the community, in the church. That's local and universal. And then right after this allusion to Psalm 68, he now, he said, there's this big but. He says, but grace has been apportioned to each of us differently, and we need that diversity to reach maturity. And the unity piece clearly is timeless, we would all probably say. So I think the differentiation piece also logically should be taken as timeless. I don't see why there would be a timestamp on that since we still seek and pursue unity, okay? Ephesians in general is this encyclical book that's being passed around to all the churches. So Paul, Paul knows he's writing to an audience that's broad. He's not, it's not First Thessalonians. He's not writing to just this one local congregation that he helped plant, this church. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and it's going to be distributed and, and circulated around all of Asia Minor, okay? So again, like the book of Romans or some others, I think Paul's trying to communicate a universal picture. Okay, for time I'm going to bump past. But if you want to get coffee and talk more, there's a bunch of nerdy things and we could get into the Greek and we could talk about how Paul wasn't even one of the original 12, but he calls himself an apostle. And then there's this part in Roman, or in Roman 16 where he calls, um, oh, I forget his name. There's a guy and a girl, Junia. He calls them apostles and they never met Jesus in the flesh. So clearly these words throughout the New Testament, they're used in these non-exclusive ways. They're used much broader what I would call functions, than historical people, like these 12 or these select people. So, okay. And lastly, for me, once I started to see this, it was like, oh, I see it everywhere. <laughs> I see it everywhere in leadership structures, in church dynamics, in seminary, in, I see it everywhere. I like, can't not see it anymore. 
So my invitation for you is to try it on the next couple months and see it. So let's talk through really briefly. We'll close kind of with this. So a quick overview. Apostolic. This word apostello in Greek, it just literally means sent one. And we think of the 12, but the New Testament, I think, refers to many different people being apostolic or apostles, like lowercase a. And I would simply say the apostolic grace is a serves a pioneering function in the church. It pushes the church out to try new things and get a little risky. It's always seeking to look outward and start new things and then oversee development. So the apostolic is the pioneering function of leadership within the church. The prophetic. So again, this word just means like a foreteller-inspired speaker. Often we'll think of the Old Testament with prophets, but more broadly, it's someone who communicates the words, heart, and intention of God. That could be judgment, warning, conviction. It could be belonging, encouragement, insight. And it serves a revelatory function, right? The prophetic value in leadership is always trying to call us back to like, what's the Lord saying? Not what do we want to do, but what's the Lord saying? Evangelistic literally translates one who brings good news. It's a completely secular word in the first century. It's not Christian by any means. It's one who brings good news. And I would say the, the evangelistic impulse serves a, a recruiting or almost like engaging function. It's always trying to meet new people and engage with the gospel. So we have pioneering, revelatory, and for lack of a better word, recruiting. I don't like that word, but I wrote it. Shepherding. Okay, this one's probably the most familiar to us. And literally this means tending to a flock of animals that wander and you have to herd them and live in a tent. Like, that's what the word means. And it's used for a metaphor in the Old Testament for God. And then Jesus is presented as the good shepherd. He's our chief shepherd. And then anyone who's in a position of eldering or leadership in a local church is referred to as a shepherd. One who will tend to people's lives, care for souls. And this is obviously probably a nurturing function, right? So people who value the pastoral shepherding grace are going to always want to nurture and develop, make sure people are safe, make sure people are going deep and they're mature. Okay, and then lastly, we have teaching. This literally means one who instructs. Uh, It's used even in first century for a doctor. And I feel like a teacher is concerned Paul, Paul, Jesus is referred 60 out of 90 times as a teacher in the Gospels. It's his most common title, is teacher. And I would say teachers serve a guiding, clarifying function. Teachers just always want to make sure we understand. Teachers prepare four-page outlines for 30 minutes of talking, okay? And they're just always concerned with people understanding. If we can just get trained, if we can just understand, then we'll do the right thing or live right. And I remember, I remember getting introduced to this kind of framework. And again, admittedly, it's, it's something that's probably more commonplace in charismatic branches within the body of Christ. And that could be charismatic Lutheran, charismatic Roman Catholic, charismatic uh, Anglican, charismatic, charismatic, like Pentecostal. could be. And YWAM has a little bit of that charismatic DNA in it. And I was introduced to this idea of leaders carrying different kind of values, graces, giftings. We had learned about it, and then I was in a meeting leading a school with my best friend Chris, my now wife Katie, and this guy Mike Brown, who a bunch of you guys know. And we're like in a heated argument about something going on in the school. And I remember all of a sudden going, 
Mike's concerned with maintaining the vision and pioneering forward. Katie's concerned with us hearing God and the prophetic. And my friend Chris just wants to make sure people are safe and okay and feel happy. And I'm wanting everyone to understand what's going on right now. And I was like, oh, it's real. (laughs) These different values. And, And we could look at, here's a really simple case study I think I'd challenge you to kind of reflect on. I think in America, for the last couple hundred years, our local churches, the leadership structure has been dominated by people with a nurturing and a teaching value and gifting. So our churches are very shepherd-teacher, and they're very safe, and will give you lots of good sermons, lots of good Bible teaching, and then all the apes, all the apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic-wired people, have been kicked and pushed out, and they start organizations like YWAM, or Navigators, or pick your mission organization, because they are wanting to pioneer new things and push outward and and share in new places where no one's gone before. And that's not entirely bad. I think those graces are to push out and expand the kingdom of God and church planning initiatives in other countries of the world. But I also think our churches get a little insular, a little too safe, a little too comfortable, and a little sheltered if we lose touch with the apes. If we lose touch with the prophetic, the apostolic, the evangelistic value... We just want to kind of settle into our lives and be comfortable and not be pushed too far, not pushed to take risks. So here's what we're doing in the upcoming two months. Uh, And again, you you can hear that and go, I don't know, Dave. I think I'll admit there's a bit of, there's for sure a bit of speculation. Paul, the point of this verse, Paul isn't like going through and giving a description of all those words. So I'm drawing on those definitions from the way the word is used and labeled to refer to other people in the New Testament. And at various points, Paul is referred to by all five. So again, this is not like a superpower job title. But the invitation here and the hunch is for our community to continue to grow into maturity, we need all five of these graces present. And me as a teacher, I need to be challenged by the others, by the apostolic to pioneer to take risks, because otherwise I'll just sit in the library and read books all day. That's way more fun for me, way more life-giving, way safer. For the next five weeks, we've asked someone to teach an equipping message of how, how do you live your life following Jesus within the body, within the church, and in your vocation, in your whole life? How do you live this out? And we're going to have someone teach who I think, maybe have a hunch, carries each of these five graces. So we're going to have the apostolic, the prophetic, evangelistic, shepherding, and teaching. And then we'll have a guest speaker, uh, a friend named Kevin Clone, who's a church planner locally here. He'll come in and give a message as well. But, um, so that's where we're going. And I think we need this diversity to reach maturity. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.